picture yourself uh, driving down the highway, maybe I-95 down towards DC or beyond or Schuylkill Expressway or something. You're, you're on the road driving along, nice, right at the speed limit, not speeding. Um, and you're moving down the highway, minding your business, and seemingly out of nowhere, you just happen to look in your mirror, and you, you, you really think you just looked in your mirror, and there was nobody there, but there, all of a sudden there's this person in a black sports car right up on your tail. Have you ever had this kind of an experience happen? Maybe not with a black sports car. Okay. Did somebody just say last night? You don't really go, I, I, where, where did this person come from? But they're, they're looking at you, and they're visibly unhappy with you. They're apparently an important person, and they have a very important place to get to very quickly. And so uh, they kind of swerve around you, get another lane, and, and it kind of cuts you off, and you're, you're, you're a little bit disheveled by that. And then you just watch them for the next 30 seconds or so, and they just keep doing that, bobbing in and out of lanes, causing many near accidents. And you're just kind of, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't call it road rage, but that kind of thing gets me a little bit worked up when I see that kind of thing. And, uh, and then they, they, out, they pass out of sight, and you continue on your drive, and you keep minding your own business, and you get maybe five minutes down the road, and you see a, a police car on the side of the road with its lights flashing, and that black sports car stopped on the highway, and the police officer standing outside the driver's side window, and you, you pass by. How do you feel in that moment? This is, one of the most, this is one of the most engaging sermon openings I've ever had happen. We, have some, we might have some community therapy that needs to be done here, okay? This is really something. You're feeling pity for that driver, right? Oh, that's a bummer for them. You're not thinking that. Sweet justice has been served, right? That person, that, that reckless driver, finally got what was due. Uh, glimpses of justice like that are satisfying. Uh, but sadly, in our world, they are all too rare. Uh, I don't just mean about the random stray reckless driver. But we look at the, round, the world around us uh, and world leaders abusing power and oppressing people like Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un or all the unknown perpetrators of evil. At least their names aren't known to us. Perpetrating evil and injustice wreaking havoc. Uh, even this very day, uh, our family for the last couple of months, we've been using this prayer calendar from the ministry Open Doors, which is a ministry to persecuted Christians. And there's just a short little uh, snapshot, just a couple sentences that you can pray on a daily basis, and we've been doing that now for a few months, and it's, it's been good for us, but it's, it's hard, like it's wearying to be reminded every day of the way Christians are targeted and oppressed and assaulted and physically uh, beaten and imprisoned and even killed. Every day this injustice continues. Perhaps there's personal grievances that you have, even as you come into this gathering, injustices that you have endured, never confessed, never acknowledged, certainly never set right in any way that you could see. We long for righteousness to prevail, we, for God to set things right. And for those of us who have that longing, 
And if you're made in God's image, I believe we all have that longing. Our sermon passage this morning is intended to strengthen our hearts. As we look to God, the God who we've praised this morning as a God who is just, who's the foundation of his throne is righteousness and judgment, and yet we look around and so often he and his justice seem to be hidden from our sight, this particular passage of Scripture is intended to be an encouragement to you. So I would invite you to turn uh, again for the third time now to the book of Esther. We've been studying the book of Esther for the last few weeks. We'll finish that book, Lord willing, next Sunday. And as you're turning there in your Bibles to the book of Esther, you can turn to chapter 5 if you're going to use one of those Bibles provided for you uh, under the seats there. You can find the reading begin on page 413 of those Bibles provided. And just a reminder as you're turning there for, of what we've observed so far in the midst of, of great corruption. God's people, the Jewish people, they're, uh, they're in the city of Shusha. There had been an, uh, an authorization. The, the exiled Jews were allowed to go back to their land, and many of them did, but some stayed in the Persian Empire. And so this is a story that takes place among those Jews who remained in the Persian Empire. They did not go back to the promised land. This is the early 5th century BC, and we saw that the Persian Empire was full of corruption. There was prejudice, there was confusion and compromise, and, and, and it was a lot of debauchery and sin we've been seeing, but we've noted that in, in the midst of it all, God has been silently, invisibly working, right? We have noted that the book of Esther is the one book in the Bible where God is not explicitly mentioned. He's not spoken about, he's not spoken to, his name does not appear. But we've noted that he has been working behind the scenes to put one of his own people, a, a young woman, a young Jewish woman named Esther, he has put one of his own people as queen over the Persian Empire at just the time when a decree of genocide has been sanctioned against her people uh, a decree really incited by this wicked man, Haman. I, was th I thought that might happen. I thought that might happen. I have something to say about that in just a minute, okay. Chapter 4, which we finished, which we came to last Sunday, chapter 4 had ended with a, a bit of a cliffhanger. Uh, Mordecai had implored his cousin, Esther, to use her position in the palace despite the great risk that it was to her to appeal to the king on her behalf. Esther realized that to do so would be taking her life in her hands. No one could appear before the king without being summoned, and she had not been summoned for some time. And the, the rule then was that if you came before him and you weren't summoned, you would be killed unless the king was to hold out his royal scepter to that person. And so this was a big risk, but Mordecai appealed to her. Perhaps it is Esther that that the Lord, he doesn't mention the Lord by name, but it seems to be implied there that you've been put in this place for such a time as this. And armed with that reminder, Esther resolves that she is going to go. She's going to take her life in her hands and she's going to approach the king, come what may. She says in, in chapter four, verse 16, if I perish, I perish. And this morning, we're gonna see how that cliffhanger resolves. We're going to look at Esther 5, 6, and 7 this morning, and I intend to read it all. Actually, I was misled by the, 
the chapter breaks. I told you to be on the lookout for that, and I was misled myself, because I think actually this unit is best ended at chapter 8, verse 2. So I'm going to read into the first couple of verses of of chapter 8 this morning, because we want to see how that conflict, how that cliffhanger is resolved through a very dramatic and decisive reversal of fortunes. That's really the main point, I think, of these chapters, and it is the main point of this sermon. There is a great reversal. It's not the most compelling outline I've ever given you, but that's the outline for three whole chapters is reversal. And I want you to be on the lookout for it as I read this whole passage, and I'm going to read the whole passage in its entirety here in just a minute. I want you to be on the lookout for that theme, that idea of reversal. Uh, We could press into that reversal a little bit more by thinking about the words of Jesus. In Matthew 23, he said, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's the kind of reversal that we're going to see in these chapters. And again, that's the main point of our sermon. There may be some details. I'm happy to talk with you more. If I don't hit on something you were hoping I would talk about, happy to talk with you after the service. But that's what I want you to see, that very urgent lesson that those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And uh, to, to help us do that, to help us stay focused on the passage, I'm, I'm going to ask that we not do the booing thing. Okay? Did someone just boo the, the meat that I just said not to do the booing thing? Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I had a fun idea this week. And, and it, must, it must have been that Matt Hartel was praying for me because I don't have fun ideas. And Matt knows. Okay. But, but uh, this, I mentioned this last week, that this is, what was, this, is, this is the kind of thing that was used when I was a kid, and Haman's name would be mentioned, and it, goes like, it works like this. Okay, and so every time Haman's name would be mentioned, that's what you did in the synagogue. And I, we bought some because I had a fun idea. And I, and I just thought to myself, as I was thinking through the week, and I did, I did talk to the guys last, yesterday about this at the men's reading group, so this was not just a me decision, this was a collective decision, that we just thought it might be better, that, that might detract from actually our meditating upon the passage of Scripture, because Haman's name is going to come up a lot. And that might detract. And one thing about my upbringing is I did not care what God was saying. So I liked, the, I liked Purim and get together and shake that thing up, but it was being read in Hebrew, and I didn't even understand what was being said, nor did I care about what was being said. I just wanted to make noise when Haman's name was mentioned. And we're, we're not trying to cultivate that environment, are we? we? We want to have reverence before the Word of God. And so I don't want you to get lost jeering for Haman and miss the very sobering message that there is in this passage for us about pride and the very hope-giving words there are about humility. So uh, here's the deal. We do have them, and they're going to be at the back afterwards. And kids, you can grab one of those, and when you go home this afternoon or sometime this week, I want you to read this. You know what? I could stand up here for a long time. You're just making the sermon longer yourselves. I can, I can interact. I can do this. Hear me out even. You didn't even hear me out and let me finish that. You can, you can take that home and you can read this passage again and you can shake those things all you want. That's, let me finish, let me finish. Was that, was that you, Sean? It was booing me still. Just let me finish, man. Now, I'm going to also, and I knew that Tyrell was going to be very excited about those things too. I knew that. Um, when we get, I want to give you a little reward, okay? When we get to chapter 7, verse 6, so all this pent-up frustration with me apparently that you have now, 
when we get to seven, six, that's the big moment. Oh, for, uh, you can just look at it now. We just, this, this book's been in existence for 2,500 years. I'm not playing spoiler right now. When he says there, in, or when she says in Esther 7, 6, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman, that's like the big, that's like the moment of moments. I want you to take all your pent-up frustration with me and all your hatred of Haman and jeer and boo and scream at that moment. Okay? So I'm giving you an outlet. I'm giving you an outlet for that. And Sean Tyrell, I'll even do this for you. If you want to gather all the people in the church on Wednesday evening, March 16th, maybe this is one thing we'll do, that's Purim. I will come here happily if we have a desire for it. And I will read this whole book of Esther from start to finish. It's about the length of a sermon. And you can bring those things and we can do the whole thing and have a Purim celebration <laughs> on March 16th. Okay? Many things, many opportunities. But that's how we're going to do this. I don't want you to miss. So it's funny, we can joke, we can laugh. I know you want to get one of these and do that, okay? It's a really serious lesson that God is wanting to teach us from this passage. So let's not miss that. In fact, let me pray that we'll get it and then we'll read the passage. Father, thank you for uh, your word. We do pray that you would instruct us from it, that you would help us to be attentive to this long passage of scripture, that you would help us to be humble, and that you would help us to hate pride. We ask for this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Esther chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him beyond, how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, 
Let a gallows, fifty cubits high, be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of the memorable deeds, the chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned." This is such a great story. You're supposed to be enjoying this story. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, are you ready? A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. <laughs> then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the, to the place where they were drinking wine. 
as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And the word left the mouth of the king. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Amen, indeed. This is, this is God's word to us. And we are, we are thankful for it. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. That's the sobering and serious lesson that we have here in Haman's life. In Haman, we see that biblical truth explained in Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We see a little foretaste of the, the fulfillment that will come on the final day of what the Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Isn't that so vivid and so thorough? in the depiction that we have here of Haman. How lofty and exalted he appeared, boasting in his great wealth and his large family and his career advancement and his great status and his glory among men. You see him boasting there in chapter 5, verse 11. He'd even been invited, not once now, but a second time as the lone guest to a special banquet with the king and the queen. Surely Haman was a great and glorious man, and he knew it, and he loved that it was so. But appearances can be incredibly misleading, especially as it pertains to what we call greatness in the eyes of the world. Teenagers, I hope you might especially consider that for just a moment, and maybe even talk to your parents this afternoon or this week about what I mean by that. That appearances can be very misleading, especially about the the greatness that people esteem in this world. God's word attests to it. Psalm 49 verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Even in his great pomp, and splendor, Haman was a fleeting and perishing beast. 
Even before his downfall that we see at the end of this passage, we get a glimpse of the vanity and the futility of his pride there in chapter 5, verse 13, right? He's been boasting and glorying in all of his possessions and his wealth and his status. But he says there in chapter 5, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Is that not crazy? He has the whole world at his fingertips. He has the king's signet ring, the king's authorization, basically to do his will. He's got that in his back pocket. And yet it all means nothing to him because there's one single solitary Jew who is not bowing down before him, not giving him the esteem that he is due. I think we're supposed to look at that and see and be repulsed by the stupidity of human pride and boasting. Haman, with all his pomp, was like a beast perishing because he had forsaken the knowledge and the glory of God in pursuit of his own glory and fame. We can forget that, actually. We can miss that part of the story because, as I mentioned, because God is unnamed throughout this story, it's easy to forget that Haman's rage against Mordecai and how that rage got extended to the whole Jewish people, really foundationally, that was the fruit of his rage against the Lord. There was a deep void in Haman's soul because he had set himself stubbornly against the Lord. The Lord is the great treasure and reward and glory of his people, is he not? The psalmist cries out, Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And on earth... There's nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Praise the Lord indeed, but Haman refused to have God in this way and so made himself a beast, almost less than a man. Kids, kids, listen. For a moment. Kids, we're just, if you're a kid under the age of 12, or 12 and under, would you just raise your hand for a second? Kids, kids, 12 and under. I just want to see where you are so I can be looking. Okay, okay, you can put them down. Kids, I want, I want you to listen to me for like a minute. I mean, I hope you're listening to everything, but just listen, listen carefully here for a minute. No one and no thing is more precious than God. And we were made by God to show off how precious and great he is. You were not made to show off how great and precious you are. God made you. He gave you a special calling to show off what he's like. And everything he's given you He's given to you so that you might show off how great and beautiful he is. Not making a big deal and a great deal about us, but about him. And yet it's hard for us to do that. It's not just hard for you kids to do that. It's hard for all of us to do that. Sometimes we kind of just like to make things about us. And the Bible calls that, that desire to make things about us, the Bible calls that sin. And so God... Because he's good, he endeavors, he resolves, he is committed to laying low that kind of pride 
and judging that sin. And that's what we see happening in the life of Haman. And there's a certain kind of sweetness to it, is there not? It was, I, could, I could detect it in the way you were enjoying that story and a little chuckling at certain parts as you saw the way it was unfolding. I think God intended it that way. See, here's Haman, right, at the end of chapter 5, and he's, he's stinging from Mordecai's slight, right? He, he, Mordecai won't bow down. He's not even looking at him at this point. And he's got all this splendor, but he's really just rotten in his soul because Mordecai won't bow down. And his wife and his friends, they devise this scheme uh, that, that he's going to just do away with Mordecai. He's going to make a gallows so he can go and enjoy his second feast with the king and the queen. He likes that plan. He thinks that's a great idea. He's so eager to enact that plan. He's having a hard time sleeping, Haman. He's so excited. You ever been really excited about something, kids? Your birthday or a, a, a vacation, you're excited. He couldn't sleep. Haman was so excited, he couldn't sleep. He gets up early. He goes to seek the king's permission to kill Mordecai, and he gets there just as the king himself is having a bad night's sleep, and he's thinking about how to reward Mordecai for that act that Mordecai saved his life that we had read about back in chapter 2. That act had never been rewarded, so now the king wants to know, how can I reward Mordecai? He hears that Haman's in the palace. He says, Haman, come on, you, you've, you've advised me in some ways, and he happens to lay out this scenario, and he just happens to forget that he, he doesn't mention Mordecai by name. So, Picture Haman, he's coming in there like a little kid with a temper tantrum, and he's all upset about something, and then the kid just sees a little a piece of cake on the kitchen counter, and he totally forgets about that thing he was upset about. Haman is stinging, he's ready to have uh, Mordecai killed, and then, and then the king wants to talk about glorying the one whom the king delights in. He's oh, forget about Mordecai. Oh, do, do, do this and do this, and he doesn't have any idea that the king is talking about honoring Mordecai. And now Haman's the one who's going to parade Mordecai around as the favored one of the king. And so Haman is, is disgraced before his hated enemy. And while he's still licking his wounds about that, he gets whisked away to the queen's feast where he is indicted as a traitorous enemy having deceived the king by designing the destruction of his queen and her people. And so the king rages, and, and Haman is just overwhelmed with terror. And Haman falls before Esther, pleading for his life. You see that what a great reverse. I mean, there's, there's little reversals all throughout this. The one who wanted to kill a Jew for not falling down before him is now reduced to groveling before a Jew, begging for his own life. And so the king returns, and he sees Haman falling before the queen, and he either, he either misinterprets his intentions or he just chooses to use this conveniently as a way of punishing Haman. Because, you see, the king's going to look kind of goofy because Haman is the one who kind of developed this whole edict against the, the Jews, but he had the king's signet ring. Like, the king gave his stamp to that. So how's he going to punish Haman? Because really it was his authority that invoked this wicked edict that's going to destroy Esther and her people. So when he sees him before the queen, he's like, oh, I can have him punished on that. I don't think he really thought that anything inappropriate was happening. But he said, this is an opportunity. And so Haman, either way, however it turns out, Haman is hung, right? Chapter 7, verse 10, what a, what a fine greeting that was for you when you grabbed your bulletin this morning. 
they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. What a reversal it has been. The man who was seated high above everyone else, we read that in chapter 3, verse 1, is now hanged high above everyone else. This one who was so obsessed over his own elevation before man is lifted up really high, 70 feet high on a gallows so everybody could see his ruin. The one who has exalted himself has been humbled. And those who've humbled themselves, the the downtrodden, the oppressed, those of humble estate, right? Mordecai, even though his faith commitment is somewhat obscure, and he doesn't really talk about God, but he did think about, he seemed to be alluding to the providence and the plan and purpose of God with Esther. You know, God's going to deliver, there's going to be, he didn't say God, there's going to be a deliverance. The people, we will be saved. He seemed to have faith, but he was beaten, he was oppressed, he was downtrodden, and God exalts this lowly one. He humbles the exalted, he exalts the humble, and and God did it, right? God did it, even though we're not told exactly in this passage that God did it. He hasn't been named, right? In in that passage that I read, we did not hear God's name mentioned. And so maybe we would be tempted to think as we read this section, perhaps we would be inclined to admire Esther's wisdom, and her shrewdness before the king, or her courage and bravery in going to the king as the thing that triumphed over Haman's prideful scheming. And certainly Esther's actions were important. They were instrumental, and we can learn something from them. We talked about that a little bit last Sunday. But it's important to note that, as as one author has put it, while Esther did something, God did everything. I think the writer wants us to see that, particularly in the way he crafts this story, and particularly in chapter 6. What is the hinge on which this dramatic series of reversal turns? What is it that gets everything going? Right. At what point does Haman go from being in control and plotting and scheming to being shamed and disgraced and hanged upon his own gallows? It was not Esther's act of bravery that was the turning point, right? Even after she touched the king's scepter and he promised her the fulfillment of her request, Haman had actually escalated that crisis even more by planning to have Mordecai hanged that very day. And Esther didn't even know about that. It wasn't really Esther's courage that was decisive here. It wasn't Mordecai's integrity. It was a sleepless night. Did you you notice there that that's what turned things around? At the end of chapter 5, Haman has heeded his wife's counsel, and he's constructing the gallows on which he will hang his enemy. And at the end of chapter 6, Haman is mourning and ashamed, having just paraded Mordecai around in glory and splendor. And Esther hadn't done a thing about that. Esther's not even mentioned in chapter 6. What happened? the king couldn't sleep. And you have to try really hard at this point to not see the hand of God ordering all of these different circumstances, even though his name isn't mentioned. 
I mean, it just so happened that Mordecai's act of rescuing the king that we read about back in chapter 2, that that was recorded in his book of memoirs, the king's book of memoirs. And it just so happened that he didn't get rewarded for it at that time. It just so happened um, that Esther got the king's approval to speak, and then that she just happened to put off her request for another day. Did you read that passage? Why didn't she just share the thing the first time? I don't know. But it kind of worked out well when that night the king couldn't sleep. That delay, Esther's not putting it out there at the first banquet, just so happens to send Haman out past Mordecai another time, which causes him to recount to his friends and his wife his frustration, and that happens to cause them to tell, them, to tell him to build gallows so that they can have Mordecai hanged. So Haman happens to be so excited that he can't contain himself. He goes early in the morning to talk to the king, and it just so happens that on that very morning, the king himself is having a hard time sleeping. And it just so happens that he asks for the the book of the Chronicles to be read to him, and it just so happens that his attendant pulls out this one part in the king's life a few years earlier when this one man, Mordecai, saved his his life. And and he happens to notice that, that... It had never been rewarded before. And Haman just happens to come into the king's palace right as he's contemplating how to reward Mordecai for this formerly unrecognized act of faithfulness. And he just happens to not mention that it's Mordecai that he's looking to honor. So Haman ends up giving sound advice about how to exalt the man whom he hates and is trying to kill. Maybe that was all just coincidence. But uh, did you notice that even Haman's wife and his advisors who are not really God-fearing people. Even they see, this is no string of coincidences, this is the hand of God. Again, they don't mention his name, but look at what they say there in chapter 6, verse 13. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. I wonder why she didn't just say that in the first place when he complained to them about Mordecai the Jew who wouldn't bow. And I don't know, maybe they just weren't thinking about that, but then when this, they saw this fluky string of circumstances, they're like, oh, right, he's a Jew? Yeah, this is not going to go well for you. They understood, Zeresh, these advisors of Haman, they understood that this was the hand and the intervention of Israel's God, and that once he gets on the scene Once he makes his presence known in the world, the final outcome is not in doubt. God moves. We sang this, was it last Sunday or two Sundays ago? And I believe, Lord willing, we'll sing it again next week. God moves in a mysterious way. But rest assured, he is moving and he is active in this world. And he is acting to bring about perfect and lasting justice. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled And those who humble themselves before him will be exalted. And he will use something as mundane as a sleepless night to accomplish his sovereign will. I wonder if you've seen that in your life. That'd be a good thing for you to talk about maybe after the service or sometime this week as you would gather with others to talk about how you've seen God use seemingly unimportant mundane moments or decisions to bring about massive change in your life. I was just thinking about this earlier this week because someone had asked me about my testimony. I'm not going to go on. I know I'm going on a little bit this morning and we have the Lord's Supper to take together, but talking about my own conversion and how I 
and, and again, you've heard, a lot of you heard this story, but like, my decision to go to Penn State University was a very strange decision. It was a decision that my friends could not understand. Why would you go there? I'm not going to get into all the details of that, but it was a very random decision. But it was at Penn State that I met that dude. Just, I can't always, can't, not every pastor can do that. That dude there who just decided he was, he was God's instrument. And even how you got to Penn State was a fluky set of circumstances. But God brought the two of us together because he had saving purposes in my life, and he used very mundane decisions and moments and acts to get us there. Has he done that in your life? I trust that he has. You would be encouraged by talking about some of those things later. It's more important than the Super Bowl. And it would be so even if the Chiefs were in it. It would still be more important than the Super Bowl. God is accomplishing his sovereign will of humbling the proud and lifting up the humble. That great reversal is the lesson of Esther 5 and 6 and 7. It's really the great lesson of the book of Esther. But it's a lesson that finds its fullest and its climactic expression in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. And this is a helpful introduction to our coming to, I say the table, but you understand what I mean. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And maybe someday again soon we'll have a table. Truly this dramatic story of Esther, it whispers our Savior's name, does it not? Do, do you remember those words that we recited aloud together from Luke chapter 1 that Craig led us in earlier in the service? He has shown. This was Mary's celebration of what God was doing in the world through that baby who was still inside her womb at the time, the ba that baby Jesus. He has shown. What's God doing in that? He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. And I'm just gonna read the next two verses too, which we did not read out loud together. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God was working in the arrival of Jesus to bring about the fulfillment of his promises to the Jews whose lives were being preserved in the days of Esther. God's not mentioned in the book of Esther, but the Jews are mentioned 52 times in the book of Esther. This is a book about God's preserving the Jewish people so that that day would come when Mary would give birth to a son who would be the instrument by which the humble would be exalted and the exalted would be laid low. And throughout his ministry, that's what we see in Jesus' life. Jesus brought down the strong, announcing that he had come to bind the strong man, Satan himself, and to break his hold on the world. He brought down those proud Pharisees with his uh, teaching and his pronouncing woes upon them for their hypocrisy and their self-exalting religious pride. And yet he lifted up the downcast, did he not? Blessing the poor and restoring the outcast and helping the marginalized and freeing the oppressed and healing the diseased, loving the despised. But all of that ministry was just a prelude to the ultimate reversal in history, his crucifixion and his resurrection. What a reversal that was. At Calvary, at the cross, it certainly looked like the architect of evil himself had orchestrated the execution of God's own son, just as Haman had been the architect of Mordecai's execution. By all appearances, 
On Good Friday, it seemed as if evil had won the day. But what appeared, what appeared, I told you earlier, appearances can be very misleading. What appeared to be a rousing victory for Satan and the forces of evil ended up being the very means by which Satan himself was disarmed and destroyed. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself the sin of self-exalting glory thieves like you and me. Because you see, we're in this story. To learn, to, I mean, to learn what we need to learn from Haman, we need to not only see that people like proud Haman are laid low, that does bring great hope, that does bring great encouragement to know that justice will be, down, uh, will be done and the proud will be laid low. But if we're gonna learn the lessons that we need to learn from Haman, we do need to remember that we by nature are Haman. We are proud people. We have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. We have sought to be kings of our own kingdoms. Greg, I think you even mentioned that in your prayer, the kingdom of self. And that's not a biblical term, but that's the reality of the propensity that we have to orbit our lives around the shape of ourselves. My money, my rights, my gifts, my body, my convictions, my preferences, my time, my home, my career, my kids, my family, my life. Can we not too be guilty of boasting about the very things that Haman himself was boasting about there in chapter five, about our, our degrees and our jobs and our, our families, our children, our retirement funds? It's pride. It's pride that causes us to define good and bad so often by how something affects you or makes you feel rather than how it relates to God. It's pride that causes us to walk into a room and wonder endlessly about how people are perceiving you rather than of how you can be service to them. Pride is insane. Like, it's insane. And yet we are guilty. I am guilty. I have been guilty this week. I need a prayer of confession this week. I need to be reminded of the body broken and the blood shed for me because of my pride. Do you know it to be so in your own heart? What do you have, Paul says in, in first, uh, first Corinthians chapter four, what do you have that you did not receive? What is the answer to that question, saints? What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing, right? You, you, it's all given by God. And if it's all given by him, why do you boast as if you had accomplished it yourself? And yet we do. We're proud, and so we should all feel something of that terror. We should all taste something of that terror that Haman was experiencing there when, when, she, when he was exposed. We are being exposed by the word of God, that terror that Isaiah spoke of in chapter two, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. That's a terror that you and I are made to know. We do, well, we're not made to it, but we, we have earned it because of our sin and our rebellion. This terror that Haman endured there, when Esther said, a foe and an enemy, that wicked Haman, that's a terror that we should experience as we reckon with the coming judgment of God against all pride and self-exaltation. God opposes the proud. 
And that's really bad news for us. But what's really good news for us this morning, if all you're hearing is bad news for me, please do lock in right here because what's really good for us is that the verse does not end with God opposes the proud, but it says God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. The proud he knows from afar, but he regards the lowly. How sweet it is to know that God gives grace to the humble, that those who would grapple with and own and who are laid low by their pride, who are undone by it, for those who would cry out to God having seen their pride and their rebellion against him, who would cry out to him in the words of Isaiah, woe is me, I'm undone. He gives grace. And that grace has appeared in Jesus who took upon himself all the righteous blows of wrath that our sin justly deserved from a good and holy God. And he endured death on behalf of all his people, all who would repent of their pride and keep on repenting of their pride and who would cast themselves upon God's mercy in Christ. For all those who believe in him, Jesus exhausted the penalty of sin and he triumphed over evil and he conquered death and the devil once for all. Since therefore, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Since his people, the ones he was endeavoring to save. We're humans. We're clothed in weak and frail flesh. Because of that, he himself, that's Jesus. Remember what the writer of Hebrews has already told us about Jesus? Radiance of the glory of God. Exact imprint of his nature upholding the universe by the word of his power, the one before whom all of the angels prostrate themselves in worship, he himself likewise partook of the same things. What a humbling. The son of God would take on this mortal flesh. Why would he do it? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. What appeared to be the instrument of Satan's victory turned out ironically and poetically to be the very instrument of Satan's demise. If you're here this morning and you have not repented of your sin, you just live in this condition of pride. That's just your steady state. We're grappling with pride. That's part of who we are in Christ because the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh wars against the spirit. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're just living steady state in this world is for me, it's about me, I urge you, I appeal to you to look at the downfall of this man and see the folly and the futility of living for your own glory and look to the glory of this one, this King of kings and Lord of lords who humbled himself who emptied himself, the word of God says, and made himself nothing. Even subjecting himself to death on a cross. Why? He didn't need any more glory so that we might be rescued from our sin and brought in and made sharers of that glory for all eternity. Look to him and turn from your pride and come to Jesus today. 
If you don't know what it means to do that or how to do that, please talk with me after the service. Talk to someone who's, who's come with you this morning. And beloved, for those of you who have put your faith in Christ, take God's word to us today and believe that if Satan has been disarmed and defeated by the cross and by Jesus' subsequent triumph over the grave, if he was at work even in that most outrageous of injustices, we can have good confidence, beloved, that even in the midst of the injustices that we endure, they will not prevail. All the Hamans of the world will have their day of reckoning before the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. One day their mouths will be closed, their pride will be stopped, they will be called to account for all of their cruelty, and it will finally come to an end with perfect, fitting, and appropriate and eternal justice. And as we come to eat and drink in remembrance of him, beloved, know for certain that that doom would be yours and it would be mine if not for God's promise to give grace to the humble. Not a humbling that we could manufacture. Don't misunderstand me on that either. If you have the humility to see yourself for what you are and flee to Jesus, the Holy Spirit wrought that in you. God's word says we can't even experience conviction for our sin without the Holy Spirit. You have zero to boast in. Not your humility by which God might give you favor. But apart from his grace, we would, be, we would be ruined. And yet at the Lord's table, we get to experience this stunning reversal. We get to taste it with our mouths. We, we put it in our hands. We can touch it. We can taste it. A reversal, the judgment that was stored up for you and me for all of our pompous pride and selfish boasting is removed from us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Never to be tasted, no condemnation, never tasted or feared to all eternity because his body was broken and because his blood was shed for us. Jesus gets our judgment and we get his righteousness. He took our sin and our shame and our disgrace. And what we get is on one day, well, that final day, we get to appear with him in glory. What a beautiful and undeserved reversal it is. So let's pray and then we'll celebrate the body and the cup together. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for such a glorious salvation. We thank you for rescuing such self-exalting rebels like us. We don't want to wallow in that. We don't want to wallow in our sin. But when we are confronted with it, it's an occasion for us through Christ to just rejoice in that truth we've sung already. Our sins, they are many. Our expressions of pride, they are many. But your mercy is more. And we do thank you for it. We ask that you would help us bring to, uh, to our attention even now those ways that we are still tempted to pride and help us as we eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus. May, may you use that even as a means by which we might put to death those deeds of the flesh and so glorify your name. We ask for this all through Jesus. Amen.